0: So we are going to be in the Baptist Catechism looking at question 12 this week. Last week we tackled questions 10 and 11. And uh, we're going to be building on what we've been learning last week were the decrees of God and how God brings about his decrees in creation. And so it uh, makes a lot of sense then that we would turn our eyes to creation and how some of those decrees are made manifest. And so our question tonight, I will read it. And then uh, if you will read the answer with me. The question is, what is the work of creation? And let me get the slide up for you so you know what we're doing. And the answer is, the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. So before we dive in too deep, I think it's worth uh, taking a couple of minutes to clarify the question itself. What exactly is creation? And that is, if you think about it, a little tricky to pin down because God didn't just create a static thing. He created a thing, a universe, that is constantly in the process of generation. In a way, the creation is in a perpetual state Of creating more and more of itself. So determining who made creation might seem to some as if we're like, it's like we're trying to hit a moving target. For the sake of our discussion tonight, creation is to be understood as all material things that exist according to the natural laws that govern it. There are many who see created things. Get that definition on the screen for you here. There are Many things, or rather, many who create things, but as we will see, we can't give Michelangelo, for instance, full credit for painting the Sistine Chapel, one of the most amazing creations. I've looked into some of the mathematics that went into building and uh, painting that amazing structure. Anybody seen that in real life? Anybody? No, we've never made it out of Antioch. Me neither. Okay. So uh, the Sistine Chapel is, are scenes from Scripture painted on a dome. And Michelangelo went through the process of calculating exactly how people would see that from the floor of the Sistine Chapel, even though the roof is, is dozens of feet off the ground. He did the math so that the image would be painted in such a way that from the ground it would look flat. It wouldn't be warped or out of proportion or partially hidden. And Amazing how he was able to accomplish this. But we can't give Michelangelo all the credit for what he did because he had to lean on the greater work of someone else in order to make that beautiful painting. He's a gifted artist, no doubt, but God created color itself. God created light by which colors play different images in our minds. He created perspective and the order of mathematics. He designed hands to paint. God made eyes to perceive, he made minds to understand, and then he made mouths to argue about it. So we will try not to get caught up in secondary causes tonight, which are the things that you and I can possibly create. For the sake of our discussion, we will focus on who is at the bottom of all this creation around us. Who is the origin of all things? And so we will see, uh, as we study Scripture together tonight, that... um, that God made all things. The eternal triune God is the origin of all created things. And we see this espoused in the scripture starting in the very beginning of God's word to us. Genesis 1 verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning, God, and the name for God here in the original Hebrew is Elohim, which is interestingly a plural construct, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So here we see God named as Elohim a name that many theologians believe is hinting already in the very first verse of Scripture at the triune, unique, and holy nature of God. And we see the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters as God speaks nothing into something. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I'm going to put my boys on the spot here since they have tried to memorize John chapter 1. When it's speaking about the word there, who specifically is he speaking about? Jesus. That's right. If you go down to verse 14, John 1 tells us that the word is God in the flesh. It is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. And so we've seen the spirit hovering over the face of the waters, and here we see a kind of a recap of creation in John chapter 1, which harkens back to the beginning again and shows us that the word, Jesus, was there. Before incarnation happened, he was already and has always been God. And he was involved in the creation of all things. And then we see in Ephesians 3, verse 9, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, and this is referring to the Father here, who created all things. And so we discern by these scriptures that creation is a collaborative work that is done as it is done by each of the three persons of the Trinity. None of the Father, the Son, or the Spirit is in any way or shape a created being. In fact, when we double back on John chapter 1, we read and without him the word Jesus was not anything made that was made. Let's think about that for a minute. We can rightly break down all of existence into two categories of things, created things and uncreated things. In the category of that which was uncreated, only the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are rightfully be to be counted in this category. Nothing made them, and they owe their existence to nothing. Nothing. They fill up that entire category. There's room for nothing else in that category. And so of all the things that are uncreated, we have Father, Son, and Spirit. Nothing is put into the second category, the category of created things, unless it was made by the Son. So everything that was created came into creation through Jesus the Son. Therefore, Jesus cannot be a created thing, because nothing that was made was made by anything other than Jesus himself. Uh, One more note, we learn of no other collaboration between the triune God and any other being in the formation of the creation. So the triune God receives all the credit and the glory for what has been made. We look at Job 41.11, it says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. In other words, there there was no subcontracting done by the triune God when the creation was brought into being. He did this all himself. There is no partner in this apart from Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he has relied on no one in bringing the universe into existence. We're going to see that the book of Job is going to give us much insight into the creation. So we'll be returning there in a few minutes. The scripture clearly declares the role of the triune God in creation. But what is the scope of their responsibility in bringing things into existence. We see from Scripture that God made not just some things, but all things. How much of creation did the triune God make? Acts 17.24 makes it abundantly clear. God who made the world and everything in it. Because God is the first cause of all things, he receives glory for all the good things that Came to be in his creation. Again, there is not anything in the category of created things that did not come into creation except through God himself. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. You know, one of the great advantages of developing and teaching through a systematic structure of doctrine is that we begin to see how important aspects of our theology are interlinked and dependent one upon the other. We recently studied the decrees of God. And we marveled at the sovereignty that God holds over all that he has made. What he wills to come to pass will surely come to pass. And here we see a parallel to that and that nothing is made that does not in some way fit into God's perfect will and plan. So these two aspects are very naturally tied together, that God orders his will by decree and that he is in fact the one that brought all things into existence. So this is... This is indicative of the fact that the totality of creation belongs to God, that he made it and he sustains it. If if God is sovereign, his hand has to be in all of it, doesn't it? Now, this means that even things that have turned sour, even the fall of man and even the sin that man produces exists uh, by the allowance of a good and a holy God. And the reason that can be because this God of justice is not finished bringing justice about. Though we do see the evidence of sinfulness in the creation, there exists uh, error and we ourselves are guilty of much of it. God has assured us that justice will be done and that all things in his right time will be brought back into perfect order. That which is sinful and rebellious against him that does not have atonement in Christ will be surely put to judgment and condemnation And order will be restored to the creation so that not only is it as good as it was before the fall of man, we have reason to believe that will be even better what God created to begin with. So God is the first cause of all things. So all things owe their existence to him. And this should teach us to carry a sense of humility, especially in regards to thinking about things that we create. We often think of ourselves as being made in the image of God, reflecting some of the nature and the characteristics of the God who created us, and that is surely true. But our creation is so much less significant than God's order of creation. So I want you to turn to Job in the Old Testament. I want us to look at Job chapter 38 to get a feel for this. I'm gonna read quite a bit of of these verses here. This is, of course, uh, the grand finale of a divine and cosmic drama that plays out between God and Satan And one of God's faithful followers, a man named Job. We are probably all here familiar with the book of Job in which a man who was very righteous, uh, loved the Lord God and followed his command, was careful with the way that he acted and cared about his family and tried to shepherd them well towards the living God, is living his life, is abundantly blessed in part because of the fact that he paid attention to God's word and he cared for the things of God. And Satan and God interacts. as uh, Satan is required to give a report to what he's been doing, showing the sovereign power that God expresses over all of his creation, including the enemy, Satan. And Satan begins to complain and, and begins to, uh, to note that even those things which are blessed by God would turn away from God if God removed the blessing from them. Of course, the, the question the in question is Job himself as God has asked Satan if he is considered Job his servant who is blessed and, and follows him and, and obeys him. And so to make a longer story a little less long, God allows Satan to afflict Job and to take away those external blessings that were such a joy to him. And through the course of the book of Job, we see uh, a, a suffering greater probably than any of the suffering we have ever known as people. Job's life is left in shambles, and he is left with a question, can I still worship and adore God even if all of these good things have been taken away from me? And uh, he, he's pretty admirable in his faith towards the Lord. Uh, he refuses to give up on his belief that God is still good to him and that he's not uh, being abandoned by God or wrongfully afflicted. But near the end of the book, he begins to, to tremble inside. He begins to ask questions of this God who really owes him no answers. And so we begin to see this wonderful divine response that God gives, starting in verse 1 of chapter 38. I want to read some of this to you. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you must know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. For the wicked, their light is withheld from the wicked rather and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know all this. What is God doing here? God is humbling Job by declaring details of the creation account. He is showing Job that no one knows the things that God knows. And he's employing even a little bit of sarcasm here. As he asks Job, do you have answers for me about what I need to know? Can you inform me in any way, shape, or form? He goes on to say, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths of its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. You see, the the way that God is, is revealing to Job the smallness of his creation. And as we read. We could read much more. This goes on for a couple of chapters here. Our view of God, the picture we hold of Him and the vastness of His creation and the might of His ability to make would only expand our appreciation and respect for Him and at the same time shrink the pride that we might wrongfully hold for ourselves. We cannot do anything in comparison to what God can do. We have done and accomplished nothing compared to what God himself has made. And so all of this is, in some ways, I think, summed up in the way that it affects the heart of Job in chapter 42, verses 3 through 6, where he says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And then verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, and therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. This is the response of a man who has been humbled not only through suffering, but through knowledge, through a wisdom revealed to him that God is incredibly greater than he could have possibly imagined. And he sees this displayed through the the awe of creation. God's unbridled hand is responsible for all that exists. And though we can hardly fathom the vast scope of that honor, we must at least experience a humbling through that knowledge. So it's worth our time to contemplate the creation. It's worth our time to think about the fact that God made this out of nothing, that he did not order it on Amazon, that he spoke it into existence as we will see in just a few minutes, and that no one else could have done what only he has done. So what was the manner by which God created all things? Uh, I should have shown you that slide earlier, but I did not. What is the manner by which God created all things? God made all things out of nothing. We see in Genesis 1, 1 through 3 again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is there anything outside of the heavens and the earth? Well, yes, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are outside the heavens and the earth, right? They exist independent of those two dwelling places. But we get a clear picture here that there was nothing in the material world before God spoke it into existence. The earth was without form and was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said... Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So I hope we can identify here the uniqueness of God's method of creation. Unlike the way that we create, gathering resources, making a plan, observing the laws of nature that we have to abide by in our creation, God doesn't feel compelled to be bound by any of this. He wants something, he says it, and it is. And this is called ex nihilo, creation. Uh, it is from the Latin, which means from nothing, something. Okay. God speaks, he declares. What did we learn last week? He decrees. And because everything that God says is true, what he decrees becomes instantly reality. From something, or from nothing rather, something springs. And we cannot make anything that way. All of your creative powers Rely on pieces that are at hand before you. All you can do is rearrange what God has already made. Let's try this out. I want you to close your eyes for a second. And I want you to try to imagine a new color. Think about it. A new color, brand new. A shade of color that has never been seen before. Can you do that? Now, your brain's going to strain and try to do that. You can open your eyes now. It's going to try to create a new color, but all it's going to do is put together versions of other colors that you already have. Your brain is acting what we call right now digitally, not analog. It is, it is only able to operate within the categories that God has given to it. It cannot go beyond that. We can't create something from nothing. Only God has the power to do such a thing. He is not subject to the same creative limitations that we are. Can man create? Yes. In in fact, this is an aspect of the image of God that we bear and reflect to the world around us. We are creative after the creativity of our God, though we can in no way match his ability or his creativity. And since all we could hope to create would be made of the materials that God himself has created, Anyone who tries to take personal credit for their own creation is in some real sense infringing on God's copyright. They are not giving credit to the God who truly made the materials by which we can hope to make anything. So God creates, but he does it unlike any of us. He creates something out of nothing. How does he do this? We got hints of this before. God created all things by the word of his mighty power. Hebrews 1.3 says he, and this is speaking of Jesus, God the Son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe, how? By the word of his power. If you've read through the book of James, you have noticed James describing to us how powerful the words of man can be. They are a very dangerous tool And if they are used improperly, it can create great destruction and harm. James tells us that the the tongue, man's ability to speak, is in some ways like a spark, a very small thing. But if it is let loose in a forest, one spark can create a blaze that can burn down trees that have grown for a hundred or more years. So the the mouth, the the ability to speak, is, is a mighty power. He also goes on to describe the tongue like a rudder, a very small portion of the ship. Yet the rudder is the one piece that has the power to turn the ship one way or another. And so our words definitely do have power. But our words, man's words, are completely powerless compared to the effect that God's words can have. And so we must be aware of this and we must be leery of anything like the word of faith movement which tries to make us believe that there is some secret formula like which we might learn to pray more powerful prayers and harness the ex nihilo creation power that only God has. The word faith movement, which you often hear people saying, I have claimed it, I have named it, all I have to do is speak it and continue to speak it in faith and it will come to pass. This is a, a man trying to commandeer the power that is exclusively the right of God. Only he can create in this fashion with a simple word. God's words are powerful in that God is utterly true. He can never lie. So he cannot give a decree and not have that decree come to pass. It is impossible. Because he cannot lie, what God says becomes reality. And thus it is that God made the world and all that fills it. He spoke. He gave commands and things came to be. Matter... Obeyed him. When we think about the word that we have before us, the word by which we understand this theology proper that we have been digging into the, for the last several Sunday evenings, we remember in 2 Timothy 3 that the word is God-breathed, right? It is His codified expression of His decree. It is what He has revealed to us of His will. And so His word contains a power because it is, it is the truthful decla- a decree of a God who cannot lie. It is a guaranteed truth. God's creation was not gradual, you might notice. It was instantaneous. He did not grow his creation from a seed. All that, he of all beings rather, does not need materials from which to arrange something new. He brings something out of nothing. And this is going to become very important later as we talk about the scope of his creation, particularly that it was made in six days. So creation is in a sense the decree of God expressed through material generation. And this was, un, this was a display of God's omnipotence, his perfect power coming to bear in the expression of his will materializing from his words. There is nothing good that God cannot do. He is beholden to nothing except his own good character. And we need to keep that in mind when we try to reconcile God's creative power with the laws of nature that we are restricted by. These are not nature's, uh, natural laws that bind God in any way. In fact, he's the one that spoke those, those directions and orders into being. Let's, let's not forget that. We can see the how God created now. He spoke things into existence. But now we're going to consider how long it took him to accomplish these things. God created everything over a defined six-day period of time. And we see this displayed in Genesis 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, if you were to follow this creation account from beginning to end in Genesis chapter 1, you would see that this is not unusual. When God is describing his six days of creation he gives us specific markers that would indicate a literal day, doesn't he? A morning and an evening. These are not the characteristics of an age or an epoch. These are the characteristics of a literal 24-hour period. Genesis one thirty-one. We see this repeated again in Exodus 20.11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. So there are patterns at play in the way that God created all things. Could God have created all things in one day? Surely he could have. He has the power to create and destroy with a breath. And yet it was in his good design to use six days to order his creation, a pattern which created for us a template by which we live our lives. God created man to have dominion and be productive, to tend to the garden in which he was placed, to name the animals, to tend to the things that God had made. And he insisted that man follow his pattern in creation. Six days of productive rest, or of productive work, followed by a sixth day of rest, which is productive in its own way. Productive not in that we are creating anything, but in that we are reflecting and resting in the God who spoke all things into existence. Since the 18th century and the rise of the Darwinian theory of evolution, this aspect of the answer to question 12 in our catechism has become probably the most controversial aspect of it. Many of the specific details about how God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it that should baffle us But this is the aspect that people are most likely to debate over, even within the church of God itself. There are faithful brothers and sisters who will say amen to every aspect of this catechism response, with the one exception being the aspect of time. How long did it actually take God to create space and time? Now the position that you're going to hear consistently preached at First Family Church and the position of the Baptist Catechism, the position of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the london sixteen eighty nine confession. The position of the overwhelming majority of God's people from the time that Genesis was written, and even before it was codified, is that the word of Genesis one should be taken at face value. And we should consider the created universe to be a, to have been formed by God within the span of six literal twenty four hour periods. And this is often going to be referred to as the young earth interpretation. And those who hold to it, believe that the created universe is somewhere around six to maybe even 7,000 years old. From the beginning of its inception to now, that's how much time has passed. There is a growing minority of believers who have, in the last 150 years or so, taken the position that the six days of creation, spoken of in Genesis chapter 1 and elsewhere throughout the Bible, are not to be understood as literal days, but as epochs, or large periods of time during which God used the observable laws of nature many of which we have come to understand more fully today to develop the earth through great periods of time and probably through evolution they say so some of the names of these different theories and there's nuances I'm not going to get into all the different theories that exist but there is something called the gap theory which believes that in between genesis 1:1 In Genesis 1 2, there's an unknown span of time during which God created and did much in the cosmic scale of things. That's called the gap theory. And then he finished up creation through days uh, 2 through 6. There is the day age theory, which says that each of the days spoken of in Genesis represents a large, massive quantity of time, maybe even as large as millions of years. There is theistic evolution, which is an offshoot of the day-age theory. They are partners in many ways. There is the idea of progressive creationism. Now, each of these approaches seeks to harmonize the biblical text with findings and research of modern geological science and other scientific contributions. Uh, People who study the strata of rocks, it's called stratigraphy, um, believe that the biblical flood that is described in Genesis 6 cannot be true. They have examined what has come to be known as carbon dating and they believe that it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that things have been around for much more than 7,000 years. And of course, if you are trying to cling to the possibility of an evolutionary theory describing where life came from, then you're going to need lots and lots of time for that to even be a possibility. So many have adapted their view of Genesis 1 to fit into a newer modern interpretation of life that is finding its roots in scientific communities. I want to stress the importance of recognizing that this is an ongoing conversation that can occur between true Christians, and we should not assume that someone who holds to what is called an old earth theory, the idea that the earth is millions of years old, and that the days that God used to create are representative of much larger portions of time, we should not assume that somebody who believes that or holds to that is apostate or is an enemy of the truth. However, if our hermeneutics, and that word basically means if our rules by which we study the scripture, if our hermeneutics urge us to see what God says in his word as literal, unless there's a strong reason to interpret it as not being literal, then those who would confirm or conform rather their understanding of the Genesis account to to fit into a more modern Darwinian view of the origin of the universe, then the responsibility of proof is really on them to explain why. They have to give us a compelling reason to interpret the scripture in a new and different way than it has been interpreted for thousands of years. And there are compelling reasons to be concerned that the old earth view brings with it a number of compromises and contradictions that would make it very difficult to hold a literal view of other key revelations that are made in Scripture. Old earth leanings tend to want to localize the flood of Genesis 6. Those who are hearing strongly from the scientific community often hear it argue that the world could not have been completely covered in water. That's just impossible from the scientific view. And that is in direct contradiction to Genesis 6.17, which says, For behold... I want to put this on the screen so you can see what I'm talking about here. Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now that is not accurate if the flood is local, correct? We, uh, we believe the word of God to be inerrant, infallible, and if we are to trust the words of Genesis 6:17, then it's going to be very difficult for us to try to pigeonhole God's words into some sort of strange interpretation where we believe the flood to have only happened in one small area, such as the, Mediterranean, or the, uh, the, the basin of waters that surrounded uh, the, the, the rivers described in Genesis, in Genesis, the place where we believe Eden to have originally been. So that's a, a major problem. We also see a a conflict in the fact that the order of creation, specifically laid out in Genesis 1, does not coincide with the way that science firmly believes life must function. The sun, for instance, was not created until the fourth day. And so scientists say, well, how could the tides have happened? How could uh, we have proper heating and cooling in 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 the earth and in its environment? How could people have existed if there was no sun? We read that birds were created before lizards, and scientists who ascribe to evolution are firmly convinced that birds came from lizards, that lizards were first, but that's not what the scripture tells us. So order is problematic. There are several problems like that that we could discuss, but the biggest problem is this. Evolution, and these day-age theories are largely a sanctuary for the idea of evolution and its possibility. Evolution does not work without death. Plain and simple. You cannot have the evolutionary process without death. And the scripture consistently tells us that death was not a part of God's creation until the fall of man. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15.12 accords well with this. It says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So death, consistently through Scripture, was not an aspect of the original creation, the ex nihilo creation that God spoke into existence. If death didn't really come from sin, but is the process and the product of natural law that god used to develop species and to grow life to ever greater levels of complexity then the whole narrative of redemption needs to be revised right if that is true now salvation isn't properly a matter of reconciliation for the wages of sin are not death do you see how this if taken to its natural and logical ends does great violence to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not only a discussion that has to do with creation and the origin of things. It has to do with the whole meta-narrative of scripture. Furthermore, if death existed before the fall, then death, according to our final point in the catechism's answer to question 12, must be then a good thing. We're going to get to that in just a second. But we know that death is not a good thing that death is only useful in the fact that it is used to judge sin properly and to take life away. So before we move to that final point, I want to offer uh, a, a kind of reason that many people do not consider when they are trying to reconcile the seemingly old age of the earth from a scientific perspective with the biblical framework of a creation that came to be suddenly and has only existed for a few thousand years. And I want to ask basically two questions to establish this for you. First of all, how did God create? We have learned this already. The scripture tells us that he creates ex nihilo. He creates something from nothing. He does not t- need to use what is available to create anything, including natural laws. Evolutionary theories along with just about every old earth theory seems to be unable to embrace a God who is sovereign to the degree that he can make things come to be apart from the natural laws of the universe by which we observe things today. And that is essentially kind of a distilled explanation of what science is. It is repeatable observation that establishes consistent patterns in, in the material universe by which we understand matter to interact with each other. So God does not create using the laws that we see in existence today that governs the ongoing progress of the universe. Secondly, I would ask the question, was Adam, the first man, and Eve, who was made from him, were they created from a seed? Were they developed or were they created mature? If Adam and Eve were not required to go through the natural process of being conceived in a womb, grown in that womb, birthed into the world, and then maturing over decades, if Adam was created by God with a word, and was created able to walk around and speak, created able to labor and to tend to the garden and to express dominion, then why should we be so surprised that God would create a universe that had the, measure, the observable, measurable marks of maturity even though they are relatively infantile in actual age of existence? So if you were to be able to get a time machine, and transport them back to the origin of man, and if they were able to observe Adam and and Eve in their first days of existence, if they were to run tests upon them and measure their organs and interact with them, how old would these scientists insist that Adam and Eve must be? At least childbearing age, right? They would insist that that man and that woman had to be at least teenagers or older, when in reality, They would be seeing Adam and Eve in their very first days of existence. They would be categorically wrong about that. So why should it be so surprising to us that God could create not just man in a mature state, but also a universe in a mature state? I believe that the great holdup for older theorists is likely to boil down to the fact that they are compelled to apply the normal laws of development and growth to a universe that was, like Adam, created mature and therefore possessing all the marks of a universe that had matured over time. This is not deception by God. This is simply God skipping the normal processes that we are bound by by law. So what then, the last question for us, was the quality of that which God brought into being? Oops, there goes my slides. I don't know what happened. Oh well. What was the quality of that which God brought into being? It was all very good. Very good. Genesis 1:31 again. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This clarifies to us that all God all God created came to be in a pure state, without corruption, free from sin, though not without the potential to fall. God's creation was was innocent, it was pure. It was not tainted by the the defiling act of sin, but yes, it was less than God's perfection. It was not impenetrable. It was not without its potential to fail. Everything before the fall is ideal to an extent, isn't it? And as we studied last week in the decrees of God, though it was all good, God knew before he created it and intended it it to, er, to be so, that what he made would indeed fall away from him, and that he would, by his mighty hand, redeem that which had re- regressed and fallen away from God. So if the creation was good, but fallible, that philip- fallibility was, in that context, also a good thing. Who can know the mind of God? I don't declare to know the mind of God, but I rest assured that the fall and the corruption of creation was no surprise to the one who spoke all things into existence and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And the creation is still good to some degree, right? It is broken by sin, but we can look all around us and see the mighty hand of God at play. We can see beauty in God's creation that reflects some of the wonder of his creative power. We can recognize how the systems of the universe work together to create order, where otherwise, without God's intervening hand only chaos would exist there are the fingerprints of a creative god all over that which he has made so creation was not a science experiment that got out of hand and now god is doing whatever he can to salvage it creation is all an expression of god's perfect will and it will continue to unfold as he has sovereignly decreed it to do so that is the end of what I have to share with you tonight regarding the creation of God. We, we have some time for questions and answers. If anybody would like to interact with the material we learned tonight. Anything I could say with more clarity? Go ahead, John.
1: Thus, all men, God, because all men sin. Right? Paraphrasing, yeah. wrong, but you get you know where i come from. They would say animals aren't mentioned there, therefore it's weak to include animals, and then they would even go as far as to say, I think I, I, I would agree because earlier what you had said um, about you know the laws, I think they're really trying to use the scientific um, laws of the universe. Logically import that onto pre-fall conditions. So when I ask them where is the pre-fall data, of course they have to say no. Observation observationally all they have is post-fall data, right? Yeah. So to take the way that the the function, the functionality of the universe post-fall, and to say, well, nothing really changed. It worked this way prior to the fall. And I'm like, how do you know? How do you know? According to what? So. I think fallen man can only study creation based off of fallen man. We don't have anything prior to that. We never will.
0: Yeah, in a way there's like a veil over our eyes to what happened before. Absolutely. All we can understand is what he has chosen to reveal to us.
1: So it becomes theoret- theoretical at best in speculative. Yeah. And that's... that's
0: and we for get
1: both in. Both sides or for only one side? I believe that what we do have is. I would say, yeah, in, in a sense, you could say both sides, but we are more or less letting the text flow from what we already have, not trying to take the data that we have and import it back onto a pre-fall scenario. I think that, you know, we're basically trying to say, look, God revealed it to us this way, and He reiterates that with the way creation flows. As matter of fact, a lot of the New Testament really make sense when God starts to talk about the creation account um, and how it implies with our work. I mean, if, if you've got these long, drawn-out periods of time, I've always asked them, "How do you make sense of that?" I and mean, then there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of gymnastics.
0: Yeah, it's far from natural. When you try to expand our understanding of a morning and an evening, a day, and say that's an epoch or that's an an age, then you have to almost reverse the process when he begins to apply that pattern to the week and how this sets the standard for us to work six days and then rest on one day. uh, It's almost like you have to expand briefly and then bring it back down to a day area in order to make that make any sort of sense at all.
1: All Right, you need to look at the way the saints it's the same Hebrew words for morning and evening and day. The way they cry out to the Lord day and night, right? You don't see this long. Well, this man, it doesn't even exist that long, right? Right. So it's just once one domino falls from what, I, what I've seen with a lot of my brothers, not just, you know, abruptly, y'all know, but <laughs> I've seen one domino after another after another. It's like once one falls, then three or four more fall, you know, and then, not only does the creation of evolution come in, then, well, local flood, and after local flood, well, maybe there wasn't really a flood. Maybe there wasn't really. Maybe these are just. Uh, let's see it maybe these are just. Uh, Poetic expressions
0: or allegories, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, well, maybe these creatures, or maybe these creation, these accounts, these narratives, aren't even real stories. Yeah. You know, it's like Tim. Guy's name out of New York. Keller. Tim Keller. Old lady got up in this church and started crossing out all these pages. And she, so they were like, well, What are you doing? Well, I need to tear this out. It's not a real story. I don't even need it in my Bible. shes <laughs> she was dead serious, but that got a lot of people's attention then because of the word games that those guys play with scripture.
2: He's that biologo, biologos guy, so he's like a, theistic like evolutionist. Kellers. Anyways, um, if I could reframe John's first comment into a question. Okay. Now you get that. So let's say that, how would you respond to someone who says, well, you know, I believe that, of course, there was no human death before the fall, because God had to do a covenant with Adam about a reward for humanity, for men, for mankind. And then your use of Romans 5 is, comp- is comparing federal heads, Adam and Christ. And so I, ta- I hold to the position that because animals, since, since we also deny evolution, which I agree with and which you taught about tonight um, in, in this topic, how would you, say, uh, would you say that animal death could be allowed before the fall? Because animals didn't evolve, and obviously I mean there are some animals that... You know, need to survive on the the death of another animal insects for example and God was done creating after the six day creation period so could it be that the death that is talked about in Romans 5 doesn't apply towards animals not even saying that there was potential animal death we don't know how long it took before the fall happened Yeah. but how do we explain for the different you know predatory distinctions that animals have and right.
0: Well, I think looking at it through the narrow framework that you just described is trying to see it from a fallen state. I mean, we would look in Isaiah, and it talks about how eventually the lion will lie with the lamb, and that uh, predatory creatures will eat the, the hay of the fields. Obviously, God can create a world in which uh, the insects don't have to be eaten by the birds, and we don't have to have the death of of living creatures with blood in their veins. Uh, in order for these ecosystems to uh, to exist and to continue. So uh, when you look at the book of Genesis, it talks about how God gave to Adam and Eve the fruit of the trees to eat, and it would seem as though there wasn't a need for anything more than that, and I don't know why that could apply to the animals as well. I think the, the responsibility is on the person who is suggesting that animals did die before to describe why they believe that to be so and I just don't think there's evidence to I think
2: to indicate that there was so if I was that person I would appeal to the to the to the non-evolution of animals that like so a lion obviously is predatory has these so, and obviously the, we would you know, I guess suppose this is a lesson for that or whatever but like the Felix Culpa fortunate fall yeah. and so obviously God knew there was going to be a fall so predatory animals existing that point makes sense but so I think they'd probably push back and say, well, you know, the lion the lamb, I don't know if we should accept that as a literal thing. That's a metaphorical language to talk about peace in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And also then, um, I mean, would we then hold to the position, if that's what the going to take, do we have to say that also there will be no eating of meat in heaven in the consummated kingdom? And that's complex too because we see Jesus in his glorified body eating fish. Why would he eat yeah. fish in his glorified state?
1: Mm-hmm that's a good question I would just go back to what you were saying even though it's metaphorical I mean I fully believe that Isaiah 11 is talking about I think it's imagery uh, metaphorical imagery to communicate to us the peace that we have with God through Christ but why would God use something perverse I mean I think they're both we both have to kind of take an assumption they're taking the assumption that Animals that like lions had to be predators before the fall. I mean, man, what did man before the fall? Yes. Right. So, I mean, again, we don't know. It's been hidden from us. But yeah. how animals survive before the fall is oh, a mystery to That's, us, that's right. another complexity, isn't
2: it, too? Because we affirm that animals have, our plants, vegetation has life. Right. And so it is a Life. so why do we this a big distinction
0: Because life's in the blood, and vegetation doesn't, doesn't have blood. The life is clearly in the blood. So it's a different form of life. Even on the cellular, cellular level, we can affirm that that their cells are just different than our cells. That they don't reflect. In the, the orange. <laughs> blood orange.
2: blood orange Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that would be my response to that. But um, you know, I, I, I'm still not compelled by a possibility. Someone's not going to change my mind just by even creating a the possibility that something could have been a certain way when the scripture doesn't give any indication that it was that certain way. What we do know is that once Adam and Eve sinned, then God slaughtered an animal. Death brought was brought upon them, and we see the first. Expression of death in the slaughtering of an animal and the skins being made for clothing for them. So you almost immediately see the creation suffering because of Adam and Eve failing in their sin and the, the, the creation being now affected by their fall.
1: And why does creation groan to be restored, right? It's certainly, we, sin has impacted. It. Yeah. That, it's certainly, sin has impacted all Right, and so when we think about the doctrine of depravity, how it's ruined man, you know. And God cursed the ground to bring forth thorns, right? So is it just limited to that? I mean, yes, we labor, but we labor with, you know, with the toil and with pain and anguish and with sorrow. Yeah. Um, we eat those same animals, right? We put that meat into our bodies and God even gives instruction on how to care for those animals before we eat Not some crazy liberal, but I think that it does have an effect on our fallen bodies. I mean, there's so much in it that we don't know. Like Nick was saying, to base an entire theological position on theoretical what-ifs is rough. It's It's bad
0: hermeneutics. You know, our hermeneutics tell us that we need to go from, you know, give a higher priority to passages which declare something to be so, you know, like not talking just narrative interpretation or allegory. We're talking about what God declares and decrees. And so to try to base your whole understanding of creation off of what could have possibly been, it's just not good theology. Put you do in, that,
2: at least for animal death, you kind of have to... That's true for both sides, I think. Because neither one says... There's no Bible verse that says there was no animal death. Involved. Another
0: well, I'm not convinced that Romans 5.12 doesn't apply to that because it says, Therefore, just as sin... Basically, came into the world through one man and death basically through sin. It doesn't just say human death there. It yeah, says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Obviously, he's talking specifically about men yeah. because that passage is about salvation. But he, when he talks about death originally, he just says death through sin. He doesn't say human right. death. Both
2: death death in a context. The, another thing that I've heard people say is that, well, and maybe it's just because of the... The scope of what Genesis is meaning to apply, but you would think that the death of an animal would have been more impactful to Adam and Eve if there never was, you know, animal death was a total foreign concept to them. We just read nothing out of it. It was just like it happened, and here it is applied to them now. Um, the other passage to consider is, is in Genesis 7, right, where God says, Now you may eat of all the animals. But that still doesn't necessarily tell me that
0: there was no animal death at least yeah there's definitely room for discussion and debate on these things and the farther we get back the less that was revealed about stuff back then so our our window of revelation was very narrow so it's hard for us who want to have the veil pulled back in full and see more of the details about those things to try to come up with a full system of how to understand those things happening when God gave us so little to to go on you know uh, it's dangerous to try to build more than what he has given to us. But you do have to think through these things.
1: I see the way that what Paul is saying. I mean, cause I, you know, I think back to my Roman Catholic days, there were a lot of uh, older teachers, you know, a lot of those guys that took to mystic, you know, they were huge on logic. And they, from what I remember, it was there was even back then it was importing of post-fall creation back onto the data back then but then like Paul said it kind of it does work both ways there's it's an argument from science to say oh well there's no animals uh, mentioned in Romans 5. Yeah there are okay so what one way or the other it doesn't really make a difference both sides I think are arguing from what's not there to say I'm going to draw a position and say well they're not there so therefore it's not talking about them and then you just draw a position that says well they're not there but that spread. How far did it spread, right? So mm-hmm. it's. I feel the weight of what you're saying, brother. I think that uh, our minds can only go so far. A lot of these issues, right? It's like sitting up here saying, "Let's talk about infant salvation." <laughs> you can say, "Well, I let babies make it." Okay, cool. Then we start getting further and further and peeling back other layers of, you know, the gospel call. And John the Baptist, normative, and, you know, descriptive, and all kinds of stuff. So it's, it's, it's a tough discussion. It's not just kind of dry on every of So
2: I have a question. That, so what if I say I affirm a young earth creation, a literal six-day, 24-hour period creation, but I also believe that animals could have died before the fall because they're not in the covenant of God, they're not made in the longer day. Does that impact the gospel in any way?
0: I think it has the potential to. Depends on how you read in Romans 5, right? If the wages of sin is death, then you have to ask why did the animals die?
2: Good question. Can an animal sin?
0: Animal cannot sin because he's not in so covenant with God, right?
2: So then, does that, would that be a, a bolster to the,
0: to the view? I, I would imagine that would be an angle they would take. Um, I haven't had a lot of discussions with people about this up to this point. Probably need to
2: yeah, I prep I up you more that, on it. sent you that, it. that article from Bob Gonzalez. Uh, that yeah. It was written on that's had me thinking about Precatory
0: it. Psalms that you sent? No, no, no. no, no, no it, was,
2: it was about this topic. Oh, uh,
0: okay. I am around.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't that one. It was the
0: one about That's
1: another deep discussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, but if you go to you just talked about animals being the covenant of God, the Lord just I just had this scanning going on in scripture. I just I think it's in Ezekiel thirty-nine, where God talks about and it's repeated again in Revelation twenty I want to say, where God talks about this sacrifice. That it's, it's almost like a it's not an actual covenant but it definitely implies that there's something there let me see if I can find it uh, I think it's definitely Is this in the future temple? No it's,
2: it's
1: you know, <laughs> no. <laughs> we are the temple we the <laughs> <laughs> Um...